As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Schools hit hard by the pandemic. It's been terrible. Are getting a cash infusion to help students catch up on what they missed. I'm not a reading specialist. I'm not a teacher. Um, So I did the best that I could. But a Fox 6 investigation finds one school administrator turning learning loss into a financial gain for his family. Do you think this is a conflict of interest? No, I don't think it's a conflict of interest. This week on Open Record, how a federal windfall quietly found its way to the superintendent's wife. What were they trying to hide? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Fox 6 investigator Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 9th, 2022. And for most public schools in Wisconsin, students are now on summer break. But the controversy in one small suburban school district is just heating up. So for regular listeners to open record, what we're going to talk about today might sound familiar um, because this does have some parallels to the controversy we've been covering in Wauwatosa School District. And if you want to listen to that, the episode is called Runaway Relationship. Uh, I do recommend giving that a listen. There are some similarities here and That's why Brian and I are going to sit down and discuss this. But we're talking about a new investigation today. This is happening in Hartford, Wisconsin. So what's going on there, Brian? Well, this one started with a confidential phone call I got from a staff member in the Hartford Joint One School District. She was concerned that her district had steered pandemic relief funds into a newly created position given to a woman named Cindy Smits. Now, Cindy Smits had been a teacher in the district prior, had since retired, and then this pandemic relief fund, ESSER fund, came along. We'll talk about that. But Cindy Smits isn't just a former teacher in the district. She also happens to be the wife of Superintendent Mark Smits. And the way teachers in the district were talking, they believe the superintendent was the one who engineered this whole idea for the benefit of his own family. And this is an issue we've been talking about in Wauwatosa School District, and it's an issue that's addressed in Wisconsin state law and in the ethics laws of several other states. The idea that if you are a, quote, public official, and in this case that includes superintendents, that you're not permitted to use your position essentially for your own financial gain or the financial gain of your family or your employer. The idea being that you want to make sure you're getting the best decisions for you, not for the benefit of one individual. But taking a step back for a minute, Brian, let's talk a little bit about Hartford Joint One School District and why they were getting pandemic aid in the first place, because that's key to this whole thing. And yeah, Hartford Joint One is a small district. It's uh, it's it made up of two elementary schools and a middle school. It feeds ultimately into Hartford Union High School, which is a separate district. But this is a district of 1,500 students. And like so many others across the state of Wisconsin, 
they had school disrupted by the pandemic for a period of time. Students were sent home. And then, of course, we had virtual learning, hybrid learning. And you end up with uh, a hit in student performance. Test scores have gone down. Um, if you look at their math scores, for instance, in the year, the last full school year before the pandemic, 2018, 2019, the students in that district average. So this is K4 through eighth grade. The students that were tested averaged in that district uh, proficient or advanced, uh, 50.3% of the students rated proficient or advanced in math. The first school year after the pandemic hit, first full school year after it hit, which would be uh, the most recent data that's available for 2020-2021, that dropped to 38.9%, I believe it is. I'm going off the top of my head here, but it dropped significantly. So they're seeing a big hit in test scores. And you look, that's not just a problem in Hartford. That's a problem all over Wisconsin and all over the United States. And the federal government has recognized that. So among other things, the federal government has funneled money uh, aid to school districts for early on. It was for things like just PPE, protective equipment for HVAC systems, for things to physically protect students and teachers from COVID-19. But as time went on, there's been a recognition that schools need an infusion to hire support staff and others and into support programs that can help address learning loss. And I know the term learning loss itself is controversial. Some want to refer to it in other things. It's a matter of just the message it sends. But the bottom line is there's been an interruption in learning. And so the latest round of federal funds known as ESSER 3, and, and ESSER stands for the, I'm going to do this off the top of my head, Amanda, do you think I'll get it right? It's the emergency, gosh darn it, emergency spending, school spending, and uh, well, Regardless, ESSER is federal. I, I should have practiced this, Amanda. Um, it, it's a long acronym, as a lot of federal acronyms are. What it is is pandemic aid, and it's aid for schools. And 20% of ESSER 3, which is the biggest round so far, must be spent on things that address the interruption in learning, evidence-based mechanisms to deal with the interruption in learning. So Hartford gets $1.3 million of ESSER 3 funds. And they decide to spend a portion of that on something called a district community coordinator. And what what is that? Well, that was my first question when I heard of what what is is that? A, I don't know a lot about the various titles in in schools these days or what the latest things are in in uh, Hartford. That district community coordinator has a job simply to communicate with parents and to engage parents to get them more involved in their kids' learning and to look at the students that are not doing particularly well. And they have a software package for that, a, a curriculum called Exact Path, um, which reminds me a lot of your stories on AVID um, in the Wauwatosa School District. But this is a curriculum that is designed to identify gaps in learning and then have students work on this from home to get them up to speed in the areas where they are weak. But the idea of this district community coordinator is to have someone who can evaluate the data, find out where there are students who have weaknesses contact those parents and really get them engaged and get them to understand why it's important that their kids spend a bunch of time at home working on exact path and get themselves up to speed. If you can get them to fill in those learning gaps, in theory, you can bring up student test scores and, you know, the district will overall perform better. So this district community coordinator ends up being Cindy Smith's, the superintendent's wife. So you get this tip, you get this phone call, and 
it sounded like the fact that this was the superintendent's wife wasn't difficult to confirm. But where did your reporting take you from there? What was the process you followed? Well, the, the real question at the outset when I first got this tip was just how did this all come about? How did she get the job? Whose idea was it? Where did it come from? Um, what were people saying behind the scenes? So the first thing I did is file an open records request. I requested emails from September, the beginning of the school year. Now, this hire was made in December, in the fall of 2021, um, just before, it, I think it was December 14th, so just before winter, just before winter break, that is. So I requested emails going back to September all the way through April when I was first hearing from this uh, confidential source within the district who had concerns. So there's a you know seven month span. I wanted to know what the discussion was leading up to the hire and what had been said since. When I started getting emails back from the district, take a step back before I even got emails back from the district, I was on vacation um, and I was literally landing at uh, General Mitchell International Airport in Milwaukee and I got a text message from one of my sources in the district who said, there's a special meeting tonight. They're having a closed door meeting tonight about your open records request. Apparently over the weekend, there had been notice posted that they were going to have a special meeting before the regular board meeting, and they were going to go into closed session to talk about the hiring process. Now, all I know at this point is we have a source who tells me that the superintendent's wife was hired under this program and that there are some concerns in the district. And I've made an open records request, which I have not received any response to. I received an acknowledgement, but no records. And now they're calling a special meeting to talk about that. So obviously I'm interested. So we raised... Well, and the uh, the open meetings alarm bells start going Absolutely. off in my head when I hear about a closed session about an open records request, because that does not sound like a permitted private conversation amongst public leaders under the law. Right. Now, they didn't say in their open meetings notice that they were talking about our open records request. That's the word I got from this source, who may or may not have known exactly what the topic was. What it was noticed was they were going to talk about the hiring process for an individual. They didn't name the individual. They didn't really give much more away there. But it was pretty clear that this was related. And in fact, we raced to Hartford. I got home from the airport and I threw my luggage on the bed and I said, honey, I've got to go. And we raced to Hartford and a photographer met me there. And of course, I think the, the board was surprised to see Fox 6 News. Uh, this is a small school district, small board. They're so sort of outdated in terms of technology. They don't have microphones. They don't record meetings. There's no virtual way to view a meeting. And here's Fox 6 News showing up. There's three rows of chairs. Mark Smith is there. And, and I asked him, can we talk? Can we do an interview? He knew why I was there by that point. I'd made the open records request to him as the district administrator. Um, so he sat down and he talked to me and he gave me his thoughts on this hire. And he said, you know, it wasn't his idea, but she was the best one for the job. He says it was, in fact, his curriculum instructor, uh, a person who reports to him, a woman named Cheryl Simonson, who had the idea that they should hire Cindy Smiths because she had the skill set that was just right for this job. He said in that interview, I had absolutely nothing to do with the hiring process. I still hadn't seen the records. And so the next step was, well, now I have to see the records. I did ask him that day, why did you guys meet in secret? Why a closed door session? Um, and he just said they were talking about the hiring process. And I asked him, were you talking about my open records request? He said, no. He said they weren't. Um, he insisted it was about the hiring process. And then he walked away from me. So now I have to wait for these records to come in. But I told Mark Smiths at the time, I told Dr. Smiths, when we get these records, I want to sit down and talk to you again, because 
I want to be able to ask informed questions. I can't really ask you a lot of informed questions right now. I didn't expect this special closed door session to happen. Um, and right, because usually you'd ask for the request. If they say no or if they brush you off, that's when you start showing up. But this was a little different because they were meeting reportedly about the, the very thing you had asked them, and that's a chance to go and talk to some people and get some contacts. Absolutely. And so I, I, I'm – sort of there ahead of the game a little bit. Now I have to wait for the records to come out. And over the course of 10 days following that meeting, records did start to come out. I started to see emails in batches. And what stood out from those emails is Cheryl Simonson, the curriculum uh, director, who I did speak to briefly on the phone, she acknowledged that she said it was her idea. Now I'm told by sources behind the scenes that she's told staff members in the district it wasn't her idea, she had nothing to do with it. But on the record with me, she said it was her idea. Um, there are certainly some who believe she's saying what the boss tells her to say. I can't verify or, you know, I can't confirm or deny if that's the case. That's but you what have I'm multiple sources giving you that information. Absolutely, I do. And one in particular who spoke to me who heard that directly, who was told directly, who, who says that uh, that she was told directly by Cheryl Simonson that it was not her idea, that it was the boss, um, Mark Smith, who came up with this plan. But on the record, Cheryl Simonson tells me it's her idea to hire Cindy Smith. Now I start getting emails and I see that in October there is a Google meet between, a, you know, a, a virtual meeting between Cheryl and Mark Smith about a district community coordinator. That's the first sign in any of the emails of this discussion taking place that appears in any sort of public record. There's been no discussion of anything in a public meeting at that point. Um, between October 25th and November 23rd, which is the next school board meeting, there are a number of emails between Cheryl Simonson and CESA 6, which is a, a, a regional agency that assists school districts in sharing staff and equipment with other districts. It's usually a way to save money by sharing resources. Um, she's communicating with CESA 6 about their desire in Hartford to hire a district community coordinator, and specifically, they want to hire Cindy Smiths. She didn't work for CESA 6. CESA 6 didn't already have her employed. This is Hartford saying, hey, here's who we want, and we want you to hire her, and then we want to contract with you for her services. But what is obvious from those emails is that along the way, Mark Smiths is blind copied or CC'd on many of the emails. And in, in at least one case, Cheryl says, we will continue to discuss, um, which suggests that he has been involved in these discussions, but she's the surrogate making the official contacts. At least that's the way I read those emails. Um, and and it, it's clear that he was at least up to speed on what was going on with his wife's contract, including negotiations over the salary, negotiations over the contract structure. He's deeply involved or at least aware of what's going on in these negotiations. So he tells you he has no involvement and you see the emails where, hmm, for someone with no involvement, it sure seems interesting that every step of the way, including for the financial portion, he's getting posted every time someone makes a move. It certainly leaves the suggestion that if there's a question about how something should be structured or what benefits should look like or what the salary should be, that he could be on the other end giving the green light or, you know, the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And then Cheryl Simonson goes back and says, yay or nay. We don't know that because we don't, we don't see that in the public record. What we do see, though, is he's clearly copied along the way. And the thing that I think surprised me most is ultimately when the contract was voted on, Mark Smith signed it. And that raises some really serious questions about whether or not he has violated not only potentially ethics code, but potentially the state's criminal code, because it does say that public officials, and that includes superintendents, 
cannot take official actions or negotiate contracts or participate in contracts, public contracts that benefit their own family. I would think signing a contract is participation. Um, it certainly benefits his family. His wife is named. She's the one who gets the money. I'm not an attorney. I'm certainly not a prosecutor, but it definitely raised questions that we thought were worth pointing out in the story. And to me, an interesting part, and you talk in your story about the difficulty in connecting the dots is because of the way they go about it. Why are we going through this in a roundabout way? So can you take us through the process the district used for the contract? Because it wasn't as straightforward as um, some of the other district contracts would appear to be. Well, and that, and that's now it's it's not as though CESA 6 hasn't already employed people in many school districts all across the, the state of Wisconsin. And, and there are times that they will employ people directly. What is what is CESA 6? Yeah, you're right. Let me step back for a moment. CESA 6, it's a cooperative educational service agency. So Wisconsin has uh, a, a dozen of these all across the state. They, they serve different regions. They are um, sort of quasi-government agencies. Um, they are nonprofits, but they work closely with school districts to serve essentially as a resource for districts. So if your school district can't afford to hire a certain type of instructor, maybe a certain technology instructor, who knows what it might be, they can't afford to hire one full-time on their own. Maybe they could share someone with multiple districts. We just need someone part-time, but it's hard to find part-time employees with certain skills and expertise. So CISA will help school districts find someone like that, and CISA may actually employ that person and then contract out their services to multiple school districts. They do the same thing with equipment. There might be certain types of equipment. Say, for instance, I, I don't know if this is the case, but imagine a 3D printer. Maybe it's very expensive, but perhaps multiple districts could share that 3D printer. Um, there might be other services, software, whatever it might be. CISA helps districts save money by sharing those resources. Um, there might be other reasons. There are certain federal programs that may require the use of a third-party staffing agency. And when I first started looking into this, CESA 6 told me, the executive director of the, the Region 6 for CESA, told me that, in fact, the ESSER funds required school districts to use a third-party staffing agency. That's what I was told initially. But as I pressed and probed further, where is that language? Where does that say that? Ultimately, they backed down and said, you know what? That's not true. This was Hartford's choice. They just wanted to do it this way. And that raises questions. If you want to hire someone for a job and you know who you want to hire, they're the best candidate, you have the money, why not just hire them directly? And that's the question I asked Dr. Smith here. If you knew... Well, and especially because it sounds like they're not sharing Cindy Smith's services. Correct. They're not sharing her services. And there might be other reasons. It might be benefits administration. They save a little money on. And a lot of times people will go to CISA, even for someone who's going to be a direct employee of their district or at least a full-time service provider to their district because they need CISA to do the job search. We want you to find a candidate. We want you to do all of the, you know, the, the, the workup to get us the person and then we'll pay you. They already knew who they wanted. And in fact, they had to get a resume to CISA 6 so that CISA could vet her. They already knew who she was. She had already worked in the district. So it really raises a lot of questions about why I go through CISA. Now, Dr. Smith's answer to me on that was they knew these ESSER funds are limited term. They're going to go away. And it was easier, in their view, to hire someone through CISA who was a limited term employee who could then just be let go when the term of that money ends um, than hiring someone directly in the district. I did ask him, why couldn't you just hire a limited term employee directly? And he said... Well, we could, 
but this was more convenient, though he didn't really explain why it's more convenient. It just raises the question of, was this an attempt to disguise? Um, and I have been told by some sources in the district who said initially the story they got was they went to CISA to get a person to fill this role, and lo and behold, it just happened to be Cindy Smith's. When that story fell apart, they say that's when the story changed to she was the best person for the job, but it wasn't my idea. It was Cheryl Simonson's idea. So at least from what I'm hearing behind the scenes, it looks like it makes a little bit of sense that perhaps if you're trying to disguise the fact that we're about to hire my wife, how about we go through them and just say, oh my gosh, it turns out it happened to be her that they supplied us with. We know from the public records that is not what happened. Well, and it sounds like that brings us to one of the issues here, which is the transparency of the process because the story did change and it didn't sound like the public or even in some cases school board members knew exactly what was going on and when. Well, and that was one of my questions along the way was when did the school board know who they were hiring and what do they have to say about it? Were they concerned about this? Did anyone raise any questions or doubts? And that's another thing I look for in the public records. Now, as I said, there are no school board meetings I can go back and review because Hartford Joint One does not record their meetings. They don't have microphones. They don't have cameras. They're working on that for the future. They don't have it right now. And their minutes uh, leave a little to be desired as far as meeting details go. So the only thing I had at my disposal were agendas and minutes. And the agendas for November 23rd, which is when the board voted on the larger ESSER plan for the district, and December 14th when they voted on the specific contract with CESA 6 that ultimately employed Cindy Smith's, the agendas don't say her name. The minutes don't say her name. They do talk about a district community coordinator. And so through open records, I had to ask for the board packet. What did the board have in their possession at the time they, they made this vote? And ultimately what I got was a packet that showed a, a complete profile of a district community coordinator position using ESSER funds that described their desired candidate as a veteran educator. It didn't say Cindy Smith's. It said, we want to hire a veteran educator. The board voted to approve a contract with CESA 6 without knowing, according to the records anyway, that they were hiring Cindy Smith's. Now, I asked board members individually, did you know? And if so, how? And the board president, Greg Erickson, said he knew it was Cindy Smith's because he'd had conversations with the superintendent. And I asked the superintendent the same question. How did board members know? You say they knew. It's not in the records, so how did they know? And he said they knew through conversations. There's Public conversations or private conversations? Well, that's the, that's the question here, and this is where I have another concern about open meetings issues here because in my first interview with Dr. Smith, I said, did the board know they were hiring your wife when they voted? He said, yes, and I said, how? And he said, we discussed it over the course of several meetings. I asked, when? What meeting? It doesn't show up on the agenda. He said, well... I can't go back and tell you exactly when, but before, the, and this is what he said in the, in the interview, before the meetings, I talked to the board members about what's on the agenda. Red flag. If he's going and regularly meeting with board members before a meeting to talk about what's in the meeting, and he's doing it consistently with all of the board members, well, that's a violation of the open meetings law. That's a walking quorum. Uh, you cannot talk about board business individually, one-on-one -on -one with board members behind the scenes, to, for the purpose of making a decision for the purpose later of making in a the decision. public meeting. And, and if 
the information that was provided in those conversations was something that's not in the agenda or in the public record otherwise. Hey, by the way, when you vote, it's going to be my wife. Wink, wink, nod, nod. That would certainly be illegal. So I pressed him on that. What do you say? What do you mean when you talk to board members? And, and, and he never got very specific, but he said, we unpack the agenda. And I got the sense the one person he regularly, quote unquote, unpacks the agenda with is board president Greg Erickson. And, and I don't know exactly what unpack the agenda means other than to say we have an agenda and we meet beforehand to talk about it. And it seems clear that he has done that with Greg Erickson. Greg Erickson acknowledges, yes, we had conversations. The other board members I didn't get a response from except one, Aaron Wilk, who's uh, newer to the board. Um, Aaron did respond. She did not agree to an on-camera interview. She was very hesitant to talk on the record. It's a small district. She's newer to the board. But she did respond to written questions. And I asked her pointedly, did you know who you were hiring when you cast that vote? And she said, I was not aware. She did not know they were hiring Cindy Smiths, which confirms what the records would suggest, that they did not have her name in front of her uh, when they voted in December. Another part that stands out here is you talked to a mom in the district who has concerns. So we obviously have, we have the transparency issue. We have, of course, the bird's eye view potential legal issues. There's just the general understanding that we want to make sure public leaders are making decisions on behalf of the public and not themselves. But what is what is the parent concern here? Obviously, this money, this, these ESSER funds were intended to deal with students who are struggling because of the pandemic. And there's a lot of ways you can spend that money. The question that and the real concern that, that teachers and, and ultimately parents uh, may have here is, if the money was steered to the superintendent's wife because it benefited their family financially, some have suggested that maybe it pads the pension because it's a higher salary than she would have made when she was a teacher in the district. Um, it, she's being paid at a, a rate that is equivalent to $70,400 a year plus um, benefits. That is more than a, a, a starting teacher makes. Certainly, I'm not sure what she was making when she retired. But there's some suggestion that maybe that's it. Who knows about the motivation? But here's the, the thing. What is she being hired to do is the real question. This district community coordinator position. Her job is, so far as we can tell from the job description and then from things that I've seen in the emails since she was hired, is to make phone calls primarily to parents whose students are identified as having learning gaps through exact path. All the students in the district are required to take these assessments through exact path. It identifies learning deficits or areas that, for improvement. And it's her job to reach out to those families and get them on board with uh, with doing things to, to improve themselves. I'm hearing from many parents who say, um, and most did not want to go on camera, but many who say that either they didn't get a phone call or they don't think exact path is really that important. But what their biggest concern is, and the teachers have this real concern is, she's not working at all directly with students. So you have students who've lost learning and someone who's being paid to help students whose only job is really to make calls to parents. And I, I'm not here to tell you whether that's valuable or not because I don't know. I certainly am not an expert on exact path and I'm not an educator. I know that teachers in the district, many of whom reached out to me, some who agreed to talk on the record, some who did not for fear of their own jobs, um, they were uniformly concerned that this was not doing much to help kids at all and that this was just a work from home job uh, that didn't have much impact. So the real concern I think would be that this was a waste of federal money. Um, that's certainly the opinion of the parent we spoke to in the story whose son has 
learning gaps, who has struggled because of the pandemic. She's now being told she has to get a private tutor for him. The school doesn't have the resources to help him. They can't help what he needs. And they spent the money on someone who's making phone calls from home. You know you have a good story when the people involved release a statement before your story even airs. And that's what happened in this case. So take us through that and let's talk about where things go from here. Well, and I, I want to say you're right. As a journalist, when people start releasing statements ahead of your story, you know they're concerned about what you have. And in this case, it was about a week before the story aired. I think it was exactly a week before the story aired. The district uh, superintendent, uh, Dr. Smits, sent a letter to staff members apologizing for what he called gaps in communication um, and also saying that there was going to be a review of existing policies. And I've seen some documents from behind the scenes from a committee that suggest maybe they're reconsidering whether or not to continue with Cindy Smith's district community coordinator next year. They're open to hearing from staff about other ideas for spending that money. We'll see where that goes and we'll follow that. There was also a letter to families from the board president, and he, this one raises a, yet another question about open meetings um, and, and transparency here, because the, the letter is written to families essentially saying that nothing was done here that was wrong. There, were no, there was no violation of board policy. There was no violation of state statute. Nothing to see here. And that is signed by board president Greg Erickson, quote, for the board of education, end quote. So he's speaking on behalf of the board. The question I have asked the district is, when and how was that letter drafted? And how did board members sign off on it? Because it's never been discussed in a public meeting. If it was discussed in a meeting behind the scenes, it certainly raises questions about, was that an appropriate closed door discussion? Is that an appropriate discussion for, for a closed door session? I don't have an answer to that question. What I do know is that the... At least one source tells me they are un of the understanding that a letter was drafted in one of those closed sessions in preparation for a story and that they were told or they decided they determined in that meeting that a letter would only be released to families if it became clear that Fox 6 News planned to do a story. In other words, this was damage control. This was not an attempt to be transparent with families in the district. That's what I'm told. I don't have on the record confirmation of that, but certainly we have questions about how the board came to a consensus on having Greg Erickson send this letter to families. Final point here, uh, because I was, it, through social media, interacting with a viewer uh, about the, the promotion for your story had been running, um, and they were referencing our coverage of potential conflict of interest issues in Wabatosa. And this person made a reference to, you know, aren't you guys just sick of being hall monitors? The underlying idea being this isn't really a big deal. You're catching people on technicalities. Go find a bigger issue to report on. What is the big deal here and why is this something, as a reporter, you looked at it and you said, you know what, this is something we got to tell people about. I think this is one of the most important kinds of journalism we do. Public corruption is serious and if in fact there was an attempt to disguise the hire of the superintendent's wife, which, by the way, the curriculum director told me in our phone call that the reason she was the one behind the negotiations and not the superintendent is because that would be illegal. Those were her words. That would be illegal. If they know it's against the law and they do things to disguise what they're doing, 
with your tax dollars? That's corruption. That's wrong. And that's the kind of thing we should be exposing. Even if it happens in one school district, and now we've seen questions about whether this has occurred or something very similar has occurred in two school districts, how many others is it happening in? School districts, there are 600 public school districts across Wisconsin. We can't watch every one. We can't be at every meeting. And most parents don't have time to watch this closely. They can't file open records requests and, and push for things that otherwise wouldn't be made public. So it's our job to shine light on these things because the more of them we see, the more we recognize, Amanda, and I know that you feel passionately about this, that there's a lot more potential stuff like this going on out there. And we're, we're seeing a pattern in schools and school districts where there really is a question about transparency and oversight especially when you end up in districts where the school board is a rubber stamp for administration. That's where you have a real concern. If you have a school board where you've got a, you know, a board that's challenging administration, at least you have a natural check and balance. But if you have a rubber stamp board, it becomes a real question about whether or not things can be happening behind the scenes that are not in the best interest of taxpayers, that are not in the best interest of students. And, and whether or not that's what happened here, it's our job to do our best to bring light to that. Um, when you have a superintendent responding that we are going to reevaluate policies, it tells me we hit on something. Um, you know, there is a reason that they're saying that because they know this is out there in public view now. And, and so it's our job to shine that light. You know, I, I don't begrudge someone who thinks it's not a big deal because maybe it wasn't their district. But I tend to think these kinds of things are a very big deal. And that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. Sarah Smith is unavailable to join us this week, but she was prepared anyway. Sarah has placed this week's off-the-record question in a sealed envelope, and Amanda has it in her hand, and you're going to open it now. I laughed so hard when I walked into my office, <laughs> saw the envelope, and saw that it was sealed. And I love it because that is the true true nature of the executive producer the fox six investigative team trust no one the auditors here at uh, smith and smith have uh sealed for your okay so what we're going to find out for, we don't know what this question is all right oh this looks like a long one a recent report says the average person spends 314 dollars a month on impulse purchases what was your last impulse purchase? Oh, gosh. She has a note here. It could be clothing, food, shoes, tech, books, coffee, spa. <laughs> These days, it feels like filling up my gas tank is an impulse purchase. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you want to you wanna drive somewhere to go, you know, check out whatever? Well, we're going to fill up the tank, and that was $70. Um, so, I, but I don't think that probably qualifies. Gas is a necessity, right? To Correct. I want to say, I mean, coffee, I don't, I don't think that qual. that's not, I don't know. Is that big enough? Yeah. yeah I, I, think I, that... I don't buy a lot. I don't buy a lot of coffee out. I drink coffee at home a lot. I'll get Starbucks on occasion, but I'm not a fancy Starbucks drinker. So I don't really like, it doesn't do a lot for me because I'm not getting the, the fancy Frappuccinos with all the other things. I'm just getting, I like, I'm the most boring Starbucks person ever because I get a black coffee with no cream or sugar. And they look at me like, why are you here? Um, so, so I won't count that. Um, I don't do. Does something jump out to you? Because I might have to think about. So this for, for a me, it's been an ongoing impulse purchase for the last four months. 
because um, since stepping into a, a new role here at Fox 6, I've been taking on some managerial responsibilities and I've been working crazy hours. And so I went from, and I, I really just like, I like me a fancy iced coffee. And I went from getting maybe one every other week to like daily before work. I actually didn't get one on the way in because I was running late to record this podcast and I'll probably need to go out and get one because the mentality of I deserve a little treat has just bled in to my day-to-day work. So I have been, this is bad, I have been buying my coffee every workday for the past four months and I am like seeing the effect on my bill and I I. I can't stop. So I already know uh, the next gift that your husband should be looking for, which is a Keurig for the office right in your own, you know, just with stashed with coffee. So here's the thing, because I like, I mean, like I said, I like me like a fancy okay, iced so latte it's not just the plain or coffee. coffee. And right. so yeah. we have a coffee machine at home where I could make this, but it is a process. And right now I I wake up at five in the morning. I'm getting two small people out of the house. Sometimes I like to shower. Sometimes. (laughs) I just don't have the time to make it in the morning. So it's like, "Ah, I'll go through the drive-thru or I'll stop here or I'll stop there. It's so bad. It is so unnecessary. I need to stop. And I just, I can't. So that's been my, on that's my ongoing, because I'm not really a stuff kind of person. I'm, I'm not as cheap as my husband, but I'm pretty cheap. So I don't have a lot of impulse buys. And we have an agreement between the two of us where it's like, once we hit the $200 mark, we got to call each other before we spend that money. So I don't have like big impulse purchases, but that one, that one's gotten pretty bad. For me, I think I I don't know what I've done a big impulse thing recently, but um, I find that I'm spending most of my money on just the house. I mean, there's groceries and that bill's going up and that doesn't sound exciting. But we we re- I stepped through a board on our back deck recently. Like I went through the board. Thankfully, our, our deck is only like a foot off the ground. But still, um, it's a 20 by 20 deck that the previous homeowners had built. Well, I say previous, probably... 50 years ago. This was an old, so the, the structure was pretty bad. I stepped and I said, we have to fix this. And I went to Menards and I had a list of things I needed to buy. And I walked out spending $1,500 on lumber. Was that, is that impulse though? Like you needed that to fix your deck. I'm talking something where well, it's no, like. But I guess because I decided, I think it just be, it felt like an impulse to me because it wasn't a planned expense and because it happened. And then I went like, you know, a couple of days later and, and like suddenly just was spending the money like, well, I guess we're doing this now. Um, so that I'm gonna, was, I'm going to make like you think impulse. about this and come back next episode with an, uh, with a true impulse purchase. Cause I okay, don't think. All right. All right. I'll top it. I'll, this this is going to feel more like an impulse. When I get a job like that, like a home project, I always justify for myself buying a new tool. Okay. That, so, that counts. So so um, this time around, I thought I had everything I needed, and this time around, I needed a jigsaw. Okay. So and, – and, and that – honestly, of all the – that one makes me feel the guiltiest, <laughs> but it also makes me the happiest. So, all right. So that I have, is a true I have a impulse purchase where it's like, this is genuinely making me happy and also filling me with a deep sense of guilt and shame. So 
So there you that go. Counts. I'm sure I probably have other things that I'm I'm not admitting to right now or that I'm just not telling myself or impulse purchase. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty, but um, I think that'll qualify for now. I can't wait to hear Sarah's when she's back. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Sarah Smith. Sarah, you will be answering this question on the next round. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we'll be back next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.